Welcome to Live from Size Lounge, showcasing alumni of Iowa State University and Cyclones Everywhere, making communities, Iowa, and the world a better place. Good afternoon and welcome into Live from Size Lounge. My name is Matt Van Winkle with the ISU Alumni Association. We've got a really great show ahead, but first we wanna let you know about a virtual event we have coming up tomorrow for those who are 50 and older. Spring classes are right around the corner for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Iowa State University, also known as OLLI. The OLLI Spring Open House is your chance to find out about exciting course offerings directly from our experts and get your questions answered by course instructors. We will continue to use Zoom video conferencing technology to deliver OLLI classes this spring. The Learn About Spring Classes virtual info session will be tomorrow, Thursday, February 18th at 1.30 p.m. Central Time. And online registration for spring classes begins at 8.30 a.m. Central Time on Friday, February 19th. If you're interested, visit isualum.org and go to our upcoming events tab to find the Zoom link to join tomorrow's info session. Today we are joined by Paul Shirley. Paul is a 2000 graduate of Iowa State University with a degree in mechanical engineering. Many of you may know him as the former Cyclone basketball player who came to Ames as a walk-on from Kansas and worked his way up to becoming a three-year starter. On the court, Shirley helped lead the Cyclones to the Elite Eight in 2000, and off the court, he earned three academic All-Big 12 selections. After graduating, Shirley had a very successful professional basketball career, both in the NBA and overseas. Shirley has turned his experiences in life and basketball into a number of published books and a podcast, and most recently, his first novel titled Ball Boy. Please help me welcome Paul Shirley to live from Size Lounge. Hey, Paul, how's it going? I'm all right. Um, we're just going to pretend that there was a massive round of applause right yes. there, that everyone was applauding in their minds. I think that's one of the tricky things about uh, the world we live in, right? Where we're just like, am I talking to the abyss? Is anybody out there? Uh, thank you so much for uh, having me. Um, yeah. I have to say that uh, you and I were talking briefly before the show. Yep. It's been such a, a, a strange experience to uh to release a novel. This is, you know, my first fiction and I've been really pleasantly surprised with how supportive people have been yeah. um, for this foray into fiction. So I very much appreciate that. Well, thanks, Paul. Yes. Thanks for coming on with us today and giving us some time. You're out in California. We're here in cold Iowa where it's barely above zero. Uh, how is it, it out there right now for you? What's, what's the temperature out in, in LA? Well, first of all, I'm pleased that we're talking about the weather because as a fellow Midwesterner, that's what I want to talk about first in any conversation. Um, and I'm being serious. Uh, secondly, no one's going to believe this. And I'm probably going to annoy some people when I say that I'm actually really envious. I see that fireplace behind you and I'm thinking about the cold outside and the warmth inside. Um, it, uh, it's, this is, again, annoying to say, but I've had it with the sun. Um, because I, I'm from Kansas and I think Iowans can maybe relate to this. Yeah. My brain says, if it's nice outside, then I better be outside. 
So I have a really hard time like hunkering down and getting work done, which means that uh, the idea of it being cold outside and having a, a steaming cup of coffee and being able to write or work yeah. is really appealing, which again, I know is uh, hip, it's just pure uh, blasphemy as far as people in, in the Midwest are concerned right now. Well, I told you this last week, but I'm actually from California too. So I am missing my, my home state right now, missing the warmth, but hey, it's gonna be 40 next week. So uh, heat wave coming soon for us here in Iowa. So mm -hmm. Tall cotton as it were. That's right. Well, hey, we've got a bunch of questions here loaded up for Paul uh, that we're gonna get into. But hey, if you have a question for Paul about his book or anything about uh, Iowa State related, his time playing at Iowa State, leave your questions in the comments uh, for Paul and we'll hopefully get to those uh, near the end of the show. But Paul, let's jump in quickly to your time here at Iowa State. Take us back to, was it 1996 when you first came to Iowa State? What was it about uh, Iowa State names that made you want to come here uh, as a walk-on to the basketball team? I think I mostly wanted to annoy the University of Kansas, um, which <laughs> turned out to be a, a success story. Um, I, uh, as, as some people may know, came from a really small place in Kansas and uh, was not particularly highly recruited. Um, at some point I, in that journey, I was, was being recruited by the university of North Dakota and, um, one of their assistant coaches, when I told them that, uh, North Dakota was just a little too cold for me. Um, this man, Steve Craftsison, uh, called Tim Floyd, who was at Iowa state and said, Hey, there's this, this guy in Kansas that no one knows about. And I think he'd be good enough to play at Iowa state. Simultaneously, um, I had talked to. Uh, Roy Williams at the University of Kansas about potentially walking on there because I had grown up 20 miles from KU. Both my parents had gone there. It was my dream school. Um, they were uh, quite condescending about the fact that they didn't think I was ever going to be good enough to play in the Big 12. Um, so I, uh, I think I was uh, motivated to find some place that was their competitor um, to prove to them and to myself that I was good enough to play in uh, in the league that I'd grown up watching, which of course had been the Big Eight before that. Um, so uh, we talked to Coach Floyd. He actually said, "Sorry, we're actually we're out of scholarships." Um, and then credit to my mother, she uh, figured out that because I was a national merit finalist, that meant that I could go to Iowa State for free. So technically, went to Iowa State as a walk on under one condition, which was that nobody could know that I was a walk-on. Um, it's fun to talk about that now, but at the time I was really concerned with the perception, especially among my teammates, of um, how I would be seen as a basketball player. Because it is true that like within the team, there's a certain um, pecking order that develops. And uh, I think the, the strong kind of eat the weak. Uh, so anything that, that smacks of uh, a little bit of vulnerability is probably not great uh, to start one's career. So I was fairly adamant that I needed to be seen as just another guy on scholarship. They didn't need to know what kind of scholarship it was. Um, but now looking back, I do take a fair measure of pride in the fact that uh, that I went there under one set of uh, circumstances and then left under another. Well, as I mentioned, you uh academics was obviously at the forefront in your mind when you were here as a student at Iowa State. You got a degree in mechanical engineering and I, I, it kind of took me back because I didn't realize that was your major, you know, with as a, with your writing now, uh, mm -hmm. you're speaking, that it seems like you might have done something in liberal arts, but you got your degree in engineering and it doesn't really fit the typical uh, major of maybe a basketball player or an athlete, but you excelled academically as a student athlete. How were you able to balance classes and your time on the court here? 
I think I benefited from both of them being really difficult. Um, that's something I've, I've started a, a company called The Process, which uh, we talk a lot about helping people build processes so that they can accomplish big goals. Um, and that fits really well with writing books, right? So it's, it's fairly obvious that books take a long time and you have to build some sort of routine and sets of habits in order to accomplish those. But I think a lot of that training came to me at Iowa State when, like you said, I was balancing these two fairly difficult things, right? It wasn't just playing basketball. It was playing basketball at a really high level, not necessarily by me, but by the situation I was in with an engineering degree. Um, I don't think I was a particularly gifted student, um, but I did figure out some strategies that uh, that helped and um, have actually found that those strategies have been really helpful in the rest of my life. A lot of them uh, center around giving myself a lot less time, uh, asking peers for help. So like finding community really quickly, I can vividly remember second or third day of class, um, going home after class, cracking open my, my, my calculus book on the fifth floor of, uh, Larch in the Maple Willow Larch dormitory complex and being absolutely, uh, mystified by what was on the page in front of me and thinking, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do this. I had I had thought like, well, college will be cool. We'll go off and it'll be it'll look like uh, what we would later call Harry Potter because Harry Potter wasn't around yet. Um, I, I envisioned this like very um, fraternal situation where I would just be loving learning and all of those things. But the truth was, it was hard. Um, and so what I had to do was ask friends and classmates if we could study together, if we could hook up to build groups. Um, and so I, I think I've, I've really internalized that lesson, um, through all of my pursuits and especially when it comes to writing books and even running businesses that like a lot of times it's better to have less time. Um, I always say that at Iowa state, the thing I most learned was I only had often 20 or 17 minutes to study in the middle of the day. And if I didn't do it, then it wasn't going to get done. Um, so I knew like, I got to get to a mode of concentration very quickly. And then I have to get out of it to go to class or to practice or whatever it is. So weirdly, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what my GPA was, but it's higher than it should have been mostly because again, I was not at all. I could, I could barely keep up sometimes with the students, but I was forced to buy the just number of things I was doing. Um, to stay on task and to come up with these strategies. Interesting. So you graduate from Iowa State and you had a really lengthy career professionally uh, in basketball. Uh, in 2007, though, you published your first book titled, Can I Keep My Jersey? 11 Teams, Five Countries, in Four Years in My Life as a Basketball Vagabond. That's quite the, quite the title. We'll get into that here in a sec. But for those who haven't read the book or followed your basketball career, maybe after Iowa State. Talk about what your professional experience was like in, in writing this book as well. Well, so when you uh, introduced me, you were very kind in saying that I had a, a successful professional basketball career, and that is somewhat true and somewhat untrue. I, I was successful in that I got to do it for nearly a decade, which is fairly rare, uh, much like in many professional sports. Um, I think the uh, the shelf life is is less than we assume because what we see is the stars who play for 15 or 20 years and we forget about the guys who play for one or two years. 
Um, I did so that the subtitle is actually somewhat misleading um, because that book came out in the middle of my career. I ended up playing for, I think it's something like 17 different teams. Um, and that career lasted nine years. And if you start counting countries that I got to go to, not necessarily that I lived in all of them, it's probably around 20. I did play four teams in Russia and Greece and three teams in Spain. There were the shortstops in the NBA with the Phoenix Suns, Atlanta Hawks, and Chicago Bulls. Um, but then a lot of minor leagues along the way, right? So I played for the Yakima Sun Kings in the CBA and the Kansas City Knights of the ABA. I played for a Chinese basketball team that was headquartered in Los Angeles in the ABA for about two months at one point. And I think that is um, one thing that made my writing accessible to everyone was that I didn't have a career that um, was easy to frame. And I think most people's lives are like that. Most of the time, it isn't a very linear relationship between we were there and now we're here. The truth is that there are a lot of like ups and downs to it, a lot of triumphs and a lot of failures. And, uh, and I think people responded to that uh, because it was nice to hear someone that was maybe a lot like them. Um, and I, I, am, I do take some pride in the fact that I've been able to kind of maintain my uh, Meriden, Kansas roots, even though I was in these really bizarre situations, whether that was playing in the NBA or being in Paris with a basketball team headquartered in Greece and just trying to make sense of how strange all of that was. You probably had more addresses and seen more of the world than a lot of people, especially um, basketball players specifically. I'd be probably... You're probably up there as far as the amount of teams you you've been a part of and the length the length of your career probably speaks to that too but if you had to pick a favorite stop along the way what what was your favorite team or your favorite country to play in um toward the end of my career i spent uh, two uh, continuous years in spain um and i think that anytime you get to to really get to know a place, that becomes naturally a favorite. Uh, in the same way that I was at Iowa State for five years, right? So there's a real um, connection to Ames, Iowa, in my head. Uh, and similarly, getting to live in in three different places in Spain um, and get to know the culture really um, made me feel like a citizen of the world. Um, as I mentioned, I I played in Greece, but in Greece. I was always worried about, was the team actually gonna pay me? It felt like I wasn't necessarily gonna get to stick around. I also played in Russia, but similarly, it, it always felt like, A, I might get thrown off the team just because the team was run by an actual oligarch and I didn't necessarily understand how things were going. But B, it also felt like I might just disappear at any moment because it was a much scarier place than I expected. So in Spain, getting to really dive into learning the language and understanding the culture and making like actual friends um, was actually quite the boon to my life because before that, and I think this is true for lots of professional athletes, I had just been bouncing around the world kind of at the whims of whatever team needed a guy to replace somebody for three months or whatever the circumstances might be. You know, uh, former Cyclone Melvin Edgem's playing in Spain, or at least he was the last I knew. Uh, and he's had a really successful career over there. So yeah, it must be a, a great place to, to play and experience life as well. Mm -hmm. But but Paul, we kind of buried the lead here. Uh, you have a new book that's out, a new novel called Ball Boy, which is out now. The book uh, follows the life of a boy named Gray Taylor, whose mom moves him from L.A. to the dying Kansas town of Baudelaire, where he finds basketball. Tell us a little bit more about Ball Boy and why you decided to write the book, Paul. 
So I, I, I appreciate that we get to talk about the novel at all um, because uh, you know you were kind by saying we buried the lead. The truth is that like writing fiction is a little bit like, for me, it's like a classic rock band bringing out new material where people are like, I don't know, I don't know about that. I would prefer to, yep. st to stick with uh, Take It Easy and Lion Eyes. Thank you we very much. We set the table for everyone. That's right. right? Um, well, so I, before I was you know any kind of remotely decent basketball player or student, I was a reader. Um, and I found that uh, reading transported me from the basement in my little town in Kansas to all of these vast places all over the world. It would uh, warm LeVar Burton's heart to uh, to hear this, I think. But I remember reading Rainbow speaking to me, right? That, that idea that you could be transported into these magical lands by books. Um, and so when I set out to write this book, I wanted to be able to speak to someone like me who maybe is from a small town or who knows a small town. Uh, so at its core, Ball Boy um, is actually really more about the power of, of community and of, about small towns. It is, of course, about a, a particular person, a protagonist named Gray Taylor, who, like you said, his mom moves him from Reseda, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, to this fictional town of Baudelaire. And once Gray gets there, he has to figure out a way to fit in. He's taken under the wing of a basketball coach who's kind of a sad sack and uh, Gray discovers that he really likes how he feels on the court, which echoes something that I felt as a kid. Um, but at the same time, um, he realizes that this this town is dying. It uh, thinks that uh, its only way to success is to build a new school. And Gray comes from a place, Los Angeles, where people make movies about places like Baudelaire, Kansas. So he wants to show the town uh, that it has it better than it realizes, which um, if people are also like me from small places, may understand that uh, inferiority complex that some of us have when we come from small places. So in a lot of ways, it's a it's a bit of a Trojan horse, right? I wanted to use what I know about basketball and tell a basketball story that also has this message um, about the power of, of small towns and communities. Very cool. So how much of that, of the book, kind of plays off your life. I'm just curious about um, with with Gray Taylor, the character, how much did you really pull into your life experiences? I think it, it's, a, it's a very reasonable and good question. I think the truth is that what I pulled from my life is more the feelings and the themes, right? So that feeling of um, finding why you're special or finding a thing that allows you to feel special. And it doesn't have to be basketball, of course. It could be reading. It could be um, cooking, whatever it might be. You know, I've, I've had many things that at various points in my life allowed me to feel connected and special. So at its core, it's this idea of connecting to some way that you feel unique or different. The events in the book, honestly, are not I, like I, I actually was born in California. I was born in Menlo Park, California, um, but my parents moved when I was one. I don't have a single mother. Um, and I was not a skateboarder who found basketball. I was it, that stuff is a little bit different. And my high school looks nothing like Baudelaire High School, which is this grand ornate building with yeah. um, with a gymnasium that I actually modeled after Rockhurst College in Kansas City. Um, and strangely enough, the high school itself, I actually sort of use there's a there's a high school not far from me here in L.A. called Hamilton High School, which looks a lot like one of those uh, stereotypical multi-story kind of gothic buildings that uh, I certainly didn't go to. So in some ways I'm actually like 
it's actually kind of a fiction that uh, that that even small town Kansas would have the wherewithal to have this grand high school that I imagined. Um, but again, I like it's it's funny. I talked to somebody the other day who had very graciously read the whole book in a couple of days, and he mentioned, "Wow, you talk a lot, a lot about music in the book," and I didn't even realize that that was true because I think as the author you don't even know how much of your own life or how much of your own experiences are going to slip into it because it just, you know, I could say this is total fiction, but of course there were things that were said to me growing up, things coaches said that were going to like slide in there at some point, probably. It's fun. I was looking at your Twitter. You've been posting like pictures of your childhood playing basketball <laughs> in your front yard too. So guessing maybe some of those memories of playing as a, as a young kid with basketball kind of, tied back into some of those things that, that Craig goes through, which is about life and basketball, right? Yeah. And I think like, yeah, I was telling someone the other day that um, if you met me now, I'm, you know, you can't tell this, if you're watching at home, you can't tell that I'm six foot nine and I weigh 220 pounds. And I look exactly like what you would imagine a professional athlete would look like. But when I was 13 or 14, which is how old Gray is, I was 5'11 and I weighed 120 pounds, which is what the, I can remember that because that was on my first driver's license, my learner's permit, <laughs> which is not the size you want to be if you're going to someday be a professional athlete. Like nobody would have picked me out of a crowd and said, wow, that, that guy's going to be a pro someday. And I can so remember I was actually introduced to basketball fairly late because I had been a baseball player and a 4-H kid most of my life. I can so remember my first basketball game, the coach like calling timeout, walking onto the court and picking me up bodily and putting me between my man and the basket. Cause I didn't know which side to stand on of him. So I can still remember fairly clearly like that feeling of everything coming at you so fast. And also that experience of discovering like, Oh man, I do have some kind of facility with this. Like there's something about this that just makes sense. Whereas that isn't necessarily true with other things in my life. You were telling me too, that you've, you've had this book done for a number of years. This wasn't something that just came about through the pandemic. You just wrote it in a whim, but this book took a long time to, to put together. Talk about just that process of getting this book written and published. So uh, to the best of my memory, it started, I think, six years ago. And uh, the reason that it's a little confusing is because there, you know, I'm always sort of working on a book. Um, and so it's hard to know, like, well, when did I get the idea versus when I started actually putting uh, fingers to keyboard, as it were. Um, I have this, uh, it, it harkens back to what we were talking about uh, when it comes to my time at Iowa State. I have this rule where I only allow myself to work on drafts of books for three months. So when I started Ball Boy, I'm sure I spent three months writing the rough draft, just like get it out of my head. And then I probably put it away for as much as six months while I worked on other books, including Stories I Tell on Dates, which was my book that was before this. Right. So it is a weird like kind of interlacing of like I'll be working on one book and then start to leapfrog it um, with the next draft of the next book. Um, and that actually allows me to get some distance from it and be able to look at it more clearly. Um, with Ball Boy, um, as I said, when I started, I kind of had this... I kind of had this thought that it was going to be a young adult novel, which for those that aren't familiar, that would be kind of in that like Harry Potter zone. As it grew, it actually turned into more just a book about someone who happens to be 14. Um, I think it's very readable for young adults or for um, middle grade readers even. 
but I also think it will make a lot of sense to people who um, can see with a little bit of nostalgia toward their own lives. I'm really excited to get into this book and read it. Uh, just a similar background with you. I've actually moved from California to Iowa, so Midwest. So some of those things will probably I'll relate to a little bit. But yeah, really excited to read that book, Paul. Tell people where they can find it. I know we put a link in the comment where people can find it online. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be available in bookstores if people want to go that route or what's the easiest way to get The easiest way in a, in a pandemic world, the easiest way is going to be Amazon. I think it's been amazing watching like logistics change. Um, but yeah, the, the best way is just, just buy it on Amazon, which yeah. I guess like in the old days, we didn't mind saying that now it sounds like we're supporting the evil overlords, but uh, such is the way of things. They're really good at delivering books. They are, they are. And um, at some point, I'm sure when the pandemic is easing, uh, slowing down a bit, you're, are you going to make your way out to Iowa to do a uh, talk I, or to show the book off a little bit? I hope so. I mean, I think like the one of the harsh realities of, of book the book world is that most of the hoopla that comes with books is right around publication. Um, so it may have to be my next book, which oddly enough, I think my next book will probably be out later this year, which will be nonfiction again. Um, and I, and I think that kind of connects back to what I was talking about before, like as fun as it is to release a book, it's so much more about falling in love with the process of doing it much like in basketball, the games were great, right? It was so much fun to have 14,000 people watching a game. But what I really loved about basketball was being on my own and feeling a sense that I was getting better at it. Um, and that has really turned out to be true with writing. Um, where it's, you know, it's so fun when somebody says, Hey, I read your book in two days and uh, loved it. Or even if they say they hate it, you know, that the fact that they read it is, is remarkable, but what is real and what will never betray you is connecting to the day to day of like, why do I love this each day? Any, uh, can you key us into what's coming up? Uh, what that book might be about that's coming out later this year, or is it kind yes. of? Yes. Well, no, it's they're never a secret because, like, I don't, if you want to steal it, go ahead because you'll <laughs> maybe somebody will do a better job of writing it than I will. Um, I'm, I'm working on a book. The third draft is done called The Process is the Product, which is about that mentality that I just talked about, which that, that idea that, um, if you can connect to the process, then it won't really matter what the results are because you've sort of determined or defined the results as each day getting up, doing the thing, and not so much worrying about whether people love it or hate it or whether they show up to watch you do it. So have you reached out to Matt Campbell yet about uh, the process and <laughs> the ideas not. in the book? You might need yeah. to send him a copy. Yeah, I think <laughs> that would be a fine idea. Actually, I need to get a copy of this book to, to Coach Prome. But uh, yeah, I think getting uh, getting Matt Campbell's endorsement would be <laughs> ideal. <laughs> cool. Well, Ball Boy, as we said, is available on Amazon. That link is in the comments. Uh, we'll put that um, in the description of this video as well when we're done here. But Paul, thanks so much for giving us some time. Uh, of best of luck to you and uh, hope to hope to meet you in person soon. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll say that about a lot of people in the next yeah. couple of months. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. That's Paul Shirley. Again, he's the author of Ball Boy uh, that's out in bookstores and on Amazon now. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you again next time. This series is made possible by members of the Alumni Association. If you are interested in staying connected to the university and receiving all the benefits and services of being a member, visit isualum.org.